Well, last week I had the opportunity to go to a conference called Exponential. It's a church planning conference, and it was at that conference back in 2016 that God had put on my heart about starting this church. And so it was great to be back there with other people who had that same experience and also started a church and to hear how they've been doing. And one of my favorite things about traveling may be the same thing you enjoy about traveling, which is people watching. You guys enjoy that aspect of flying? And so I'm like at the airport, I'm just watching these people and it's fun to watch them be a little tense as they're getting on the airplane. We make our flight to Florida, which, you know, takes a little over two hours. It would have, they would have been in Virginia had they been driving from Philadelphia. And so it's like, oh, this is great. So we're on the plane. We're watching people exit. I'm waiting my turn, but I look behind me. And so I'm sitting in row 20 on this flight. And then this gal is sitting in row 26. I'm represented by my face, which is, you know, the new avatar. And then she's represented by devil horns. And so she... Whoa, easy. It's, it's not really her. I mean, you know, it's just a representation of her. And so you'll know why in just a second. So when they start releasing the first two rows, she grabs her bags and tries to run up to the front as quick as she could. Well, I was pinned against the window and couldn't do anything about this injustice. So the guy, fortunately, on the other aisle just sits up, does a little stretch, and parks himself like this. <laughs> And she doesn't have to go. Like, it's not an emergency of some sort. She's just irritated. And I'm watching her micro expressions because she's like, she's looking around. And I'm thinking, I have three options that maybe help the situation. The first thing I can do is just say something like, oh, this is how it normally operates. People evacuate from the front of the plane and it goes back. And you'll find you'll get your turn in a moment. I could use my parental tone, sit down. (laughs) I could also do something like, Oh, do you have to go poo-poo? Which is just embarrassing enough where, you know, maybe it would shame her a little bit. I didn't, but I did whisper that to Carrie, and that was just kind of relieved my anxiety. And I was like, this woman is going to cause me to get arrested, right? She's going to make me lose my mind. And then I feel like this whole theme of this deal was patience. So the next day, I am at the conference. The conference has started. I'm excited to hear what people have to say. I get there just like two minutes before. I'm sitting in the back of the room, 5,000 people. This guy's sitting behind me, and the speaker gets on front, and he starts talking about what the conference is going to be like. Well, this guy behind me decides to talk to his team who's with him. And he's not a quiet talker. He's a loud talker. And he's like, so what we're going to do, tomorrow we have this breakout, and he's right in front of me, and I cannot hear the stage. And he does this for like a minute. And I'm looking at Carrie. I'm like, all right, I've got to say something in this instance put my hand on his leg, a little creepy, I know, but just wanted to get his attention, said, hey, can you be quiet just a little bit? I'm having a hard time hearing. And he's like, I'm like, thank you. First guy talks, everything goes well. Then it's singing time. So we're standing up and singing. He sings louder than he talks. So loud is his singing. Slightly flat, a lot of flat. I cannot hear the worship leader. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is driving me nuts. Next speaker gets up. I kid you not. He's a counselor. He starts talking about our mental health as church planners. He says, you guys need just a minute of silence. You guys don't get silence regularly. We're just going to give you a minute. I'm going to pull out my phone, set a timer for one minute, just reflect. The guy behind me, Jesus, thank you so much for this chance. I'm like, it's supposed to be silent. I didn't say anything to him. But I'm like, this guy's going to cause me to get arrested as well, and maybe my salvation. Who knows? So he almost made me lose it. The next thing was I went to, uh, how many of you watched the documentary, The Game Changers? Have you, anybody seen that? If you watch it, you'll probably become vegan. Like, you know, like it gets recommended. I've had these aches and pains, and so I do this. And it's funny, when you're traveling, everyone offers you really good food that's not vegan-oriented, right? So they're putting food in front of my face, and they almost make me 
lose it and get off my diet. That was another temptation I had. The last one was the opportunity with my kids. I went to Disney Springs. If you've been there, if you're in Orlando, you almost have to go to Disney Springs. It's free. And so I send my kids this picture of the Lego building, right? So it is Star Wars, Lego creation. And so I send this text. And so I'm like, Lego store. Ian says, wow. Nate says, what? (laughs) Ian says, are you guys in Disney Springs? I said, yep. No, you get nothing, because I just want to go ahead and hit it off, right? And then Nate's like, give a Disney pin. And then we're now in the gift stage, so he sends this right now. I said, you get nothing. (laughs) Ian says, oh, man. And then Quinn jumps in on the scene, and she says, do I get a Disney pin? Inquisitive face. Carrie's so kind. She says, not this time, honey. We're not going to Disney. So excited to squeeze you tomorrow. So she's a very nice one. But they tried to make me feel guilty, right? Now, why would I tell you these random stories? This is a microcosm of how I use the term make me. Have you guys ever done that? Like, you're making me do this. You're making me mad. You're making me lose my cool. You're making me. And that was a normal point of my talk until I married Carrie, who happens to be a counselor. Carrie's a counselor. I tried that line on her early in our marriage, and she just put me in my place. It was really embarrassing. We are, couldn't be more opposites. Like, we take a Myers-Briggs temperament test. I'm an ENFP. She's an ISTJ. Whether you know anything about the Myers-Briggs or not, there's no similarities. So we would get on each other's nerves when we first got married just by being ourselves. You know, that's how difficult this was. And we would get on each other's case. And I remember telling her, like, hey, you're really making me mad. And she says, I can't make you do anything. That's on you. And I was like, yeah, but you did the thing, you know, that really bothers me when you did this. And she said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) I don't want you to be sorry you feel that way. I want you to be sorry that you did the thing that makes me mad. And she's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. I'm sorry you feel that way because I did something I didn't mean to do, and I can't make you do anything. You're in charge of your own emotions. Welcome to adulthood. And in shame, I was like that woman on the back of the plane and just walked away. Maybe you've been there with me. I like to be able to blame other people for how I feel. I like to blame other people when I'm having a bad day. I like to blame other people when I'm irritated and cranky. But I really can't lay that blame, right? At least that's what James says. Before we go there this week, we're in a series called Practically Speaking, and it's just some helpful insights, some helpful words that help us navigate the ups and downs of life. And James happened to be Jesus' brother, half-brother, actually. James was, grew up with Jesus because he just was there, we realized that when you look through the Bible, he didn't believe that Jesus was actually God. Mark said he used this phrase to him. He says, he's out of his mind. John records him as saying they just didn't believe in him. And so if you're on this faith journey and you're questioning who God is, you're in good company. Even Jesus's brothers felt that way. So what changed James's mind? James's mind was changed when Jesus resurrected and appeared among 500 people, including James himself. James had such a radical change that he actually gave his life up for the church. He was a church leader. He led the church in Jerusalem. And then ultimately, when he was questioned, are you going to renounce your faith? He said no, and he was martyred. And as he was martyred, he had these same words that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so that's a little bit on James. And James is writing this story, this letter, to a group of people called the 12 tribes of Israel. And what that represents is followers of Jesus. And he says 12 tribes scattered. These guys were persecuted because not of a lack of faith, but because of their faith. Persecution was hitting, so they scattered all over the area. They left their homes, they left their comfort, and they found themselves isolated. So James sends these words to him. I want to just reread 
what we read last week and talk about the trials that people face. In James 1, 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We summarize all that week with this one statement. This trial will make me stronger. We said this trial because James said that everyone's going to face hardship. Everyone's going to face trials. doesn't matter how good you are, how rough you are, how faithful you are. Trials are coming your way. Hard things will happen in life. Will, we said it's a matter of your will to engage in these trials, not to just skip out or pretend they don't, aren't happening. We have to engage our will. Make me. You know what a hard trial is like? You're never the same after that trial. Like someone passes that you love. You get diagnosed with something. You can't go back to normal. In fact, you're adjusting to a normal. So what is that going to do for you? We hope that the result is stronger. God get, lets trials come our way to make us stronger, to make our faith stronger. So that's something we must wrestle with and see what God's doing in that. Well, this week, we're talking about temptation. Temptations are different than trials, and there's a marked difference. And we start in verse 13 for that. So let's look at that together. James goes on to say, actually, let me backtrack to 12. Keith, don't kill me. You we all right? You're a very gracious man. Verse 12 is what he ends, and he says, to remember that trials may not end the way we want them to, but this life isn't the end. In verse 12, he says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so verse 12 is a hinge. We have verse 1 through 11. He's talking about trials. Trials are outside. Now he's transitioning to temptations, which are inside. And so the phrase that we're going to use this week is, my bad, you can't make me do anything. Because when we're talking about temptations, it's really hard to own when we mess up. It's hard to own our thought processes. And we like to blame, myself at least, I like to make the blame on someone else. You've made me do that. So that's what we're taking on. So let's look at verse 13. James says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full, birth, full grown, gives birth to death. Just as James says our trials are things that either caused by God or allowed by God for the purpose of growing our faith, Temptations have a different thing. James is warning us that in these verses that every trial comes with temptations. And he shows us a negative path that if we're not careful, we'll go down that leads to not growth, but rather death. It says in our faith, we will encounter trials that test our faith. But if we persevere, if we go through it faithful to God, then we'll see perseverance and maturity. Our insight will change as to what is happening in the middle of that trial. Desires, however, they lead us to temptations. And if we give in, it becomes sin. And sin ultimately leads to death. We know this progression. We've done something that we're like, oh, this is going to be great. Or this is going to provide relief. And then at the end of it, we're like, oh, maybe that didn't work out so good. So that's what we're taking on today. James uses the same root word for trials and temptations. But it's clear that these things are different. Trials are external while temptations are internal struggles. Trials are intended to grow our faith. But temptations can destroy us and our faith. 
Trials may come from God, but temptation never comes from God. So what is a temptation? A temptation is an urge to meet a genuine need in an inappropriate way. A temptation is anything that entices us to do something that hurts either God or someone else. Hurt God? How do we do that? Well, God loves us. He has a path for us, and if we choose to go our own way, that hurts. Just like when I ask my kids to do something, if they choose to do their own thing, I'm hurt by that. I'm also hurt when they hurt one another. A lot of times temptation is something that they're looking to gratify their own desires or their own wants, and I'm hurt as a result of watching them hurt one another. Well, the consequences of giving into temptation are deadly. We should know that. We've experienced that. But temptation, is that wrong to be tempted? Well, James says here in this verse, just like all the others, he says, when tempted. So it's not if you're going to be tempted, you're going to be tempted. Some people, they have this notion that one day they'll be so spiritual that temptations will stop happening to them. Other people, they're so ashamed at some of the thoughts that enter their mind and some of their thought patterns that they're like, oh, I must not have this relationship with God because if I had a relationship with God, then I shouldn't have these kind of thoughts and temptations. And both those things are false. Being tempted is part of the human experience. It's been a part since the beginning. In Genesis, if you look at when uh, Adam and Eve were in the middle of the garden, they had one rule, one rule only, don't eat from the tree in the middle of it. But the serpent walked in, he had legs then, right? So he walks in, he whispers to Eve, hey, look at that fruit. And she's like, I'm not supposed to eat that. He's like, hey, don't worry about eating that. It's going to make you like God. And that was enough to convince her. So she looked at it, saw it was pleasing to the eye. She ate it, and then something bad happened. Sin entered the world. God appeared, and what did they do? They ran out as fast as they could and said, hey, 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 we've messed up, we've blown it. No, they didn't. (laughs) Remember what happens? God finds them, and this is how the dialogue went. God said, have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? Genesis 3.12 said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. There's Adam taking responsibility, right? He said he blamed two people in that one of chaos. He said, one, that woman, you know, and then that you put here. Like, God, you know, it's not my fault. It's her fault. And actually, it's ultimately your fault because you put us both here, and especially her. She's still been in trouble since the beginning, right? So good job. So then what's he say to the woman? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, hey, it's not me. It's the serpent. Deceive me, and I ate it. And the consequences of that temptation, well, that was deadly. It caused this chain reaction where they're kicked out of the garden and sin entered the world and changed us. And so all of us have to battle temptation as a result of that. But just being tempted to do wrong isn't wrong in itself. Jesus himself was tempted to do things. And unlike Adam and Eve, he overcame those things. What James goes on to say, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. While some people may be tempted to blame God for the difficulties of life or their cravings, James makes it clear that it's not God's fault. He says it can't come from God because it's not of God's substance. You can't go up to a flame to cool off. You can't dry off by pouring water on yourself. It's not in that substance. So God cannot send temptation your way because there's nothing evil within God. There's nothing wrong within God. So how could he send a trial from himself to you? He cannot do that because that's not of his substance. So where does it come from? James says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. What James says here, it just hurts. Do you see what James is saying? He says, it's our fault. 
Remember that old saying, when you point at somebody, you have three fingers point back at you? That's exactly why I started doing this. It's your fault, Leland. It's your fault. You're doing these karate chops. But James would grab both my hands and point them back at me and says, it's not them. It's not that cranky woman on the airport. It's not the loud singer in the back. You could have got up and moved your seat. It's not the people offering you food. It's not your wife. It's not your kids. It goes back to you. It's what's inside you that's the problem. When you use the entice language, that means it's a metaphor for fishing. And that's important to just think through because the fish is swimming along and then all of a sudden he sees bait on a hook. He doesn't know it's bait. He just wants something good, right? He wants something that'll be pleasing to him. And so he goes over there and instead of checking it out, evaluating if it's a good or bad thing, he instinctively just latches out. And before he knows that he's caught, he's ensnared and he ends up on someone else's dinner plate, right? That's the analogy. Jesus says, hey, this is what is in your heart in Mark 7, 21 to 23. He says, for from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Jesus and half-brother James makes it very clear. These issues aren't out there. They're in here. Look at that list. And as revolting as some of them are, attached to them is this evil desire within us that looks for pleasure, isn't it? Sexual morality. Sex is on, that male, you know, on a guy's brain just about all the time. Immorality says you're going to take something good and you're going to use something bad to achieve that. God says sex is for marriage, but we could just say, hey, let's, just, let's not restrict it for marriage. Let's go after it and get some temporary pleasure. That way I don't have commitment on the other end of that. We have theft. We might not just go up and rob somebody, but we might do things that are you know, a little unethical, some taxes, because we work hard for our money. Murder. Sometimes it's just fun to visualize offing someone, isn't it? <laughs> like, why do I want to say I'm sorry when I could just take care of this real quick? <laughs> that guy that cut you off on the highway? Eh, I got something for you. <laughs> Don't do that. That's not good. Adultery. Marriage is hard. Sex is hard. Why look for one person to satisfy all your needs when you can find someone else? These are the thoughts that all of us have in our minds. How long we dwell on them is the issue. Not that these thoughts pop in here, but the fact that these thoughts come to us isn't the issue. It's what do we do with it? Well, there's this progression. If we don't get those thoughts out and we dwell on them, he says there's a progression. In verse 15, he says, Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Some temptations we jump into because we're that desperate for a relief. We don't even look at it as a bad thing. We just want something to feel good. We want, something that we want pleasure because life feels so hard. But before we know it, that joy that we're experiencing, it's short-lived and something's being born and produced. We might actually think this is great or this is such a relief. Hey, this is just, I'm enjoying this aspect and I'm not actually living it out. I'm just thinking about it a lot. And so I like thinking about it. But what we don't know is there's something growing inside. And when it gives birth, it's not this healthy thing that's going to give us life that continues to satisfy it. Well, what comes out is, James uses the language, a stillborn baby. If you've seen anyone who has a stillborn baby, there's nothing more hurtful than the anticipation of being a parent and out comes death. Well, that's James's very graphic metaphor to say that's what happens when we look at something that's not designed to give us pleasure. 
We put our hopes. Sometimes it's just an acknowledgement of just some energy towards it, and we find death. Our desires, temptations to give in, become sin, and sin leads to death. So what can we do when we have temptations? We can do this. First thing is we own our temptations. We don't blame someone for coming on to us. We don't blame someone for making us angry. We don't blame someone else for the things and desires that are within us. We just own them and we realize, wow, this is really about me, not about out there. This has to do with me. The second thing we have is we can know that we can resist temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 was written by Paul, and he just gave these very straightforward ways. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's no buts in here. Like, I can't say, he says, no temptation. You're like, yeah, but what about, well, I was born with this temptation, or hey, I've struggled with this temptation for years. How can that message be true? Well, it's true we just have to believe it. And sometimes it's just really hard to give a temptation up. It's like losing something that you love and you're like, ah, I'm going to put it on the side because I believe that I can actually overcome this thing. Third thing is when temptation comes your way, come near to God. James 4, 7, he goes on to write, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. This idea is sometimes when we have these thoughts in our minds, we just want to run from God instead of running towards God. We're like, God, I'm so ashamed of these thoughts that I'm having. I realize I don't want to be near you. In fact, I want to be beyond you. But that's the opposite. The thoughts come in. We take these thoughts to God, not hide them from Him. What happens when we fail? Well, we can repent and trust Jesus. Verse 4, he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He'll lift you up. This can feel like harsh language, but look at that aspect of wash your hands. You wash your hands because your hands are dirty, right? And there's nothing worse than having a mess on your hands that you feel like you can't wash off. You can't find this sink. You can't find this area to get cleaned up. Well, this is hopeful that you can actually get cleaned up. You can be washed off. And he just called it like it is, you sinners. Who's a sinner in the room? Eh, all of us, right? We all struggle with these thoughts. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's amazing how one minute we can be thinking about something godly and the next we can be thinking about something else. And he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Have you met anyone who does not actually grieve death? How they're just stuck? They're not willing to admit how much it hurts what had happened to them? If they've been traumatized, they just pretend like everything's okay. Someone dies, they're not willing to go there and say, man, I miss this person so much, or this is so painful. This idea of grieving and mourning is actually taking accountability that when we do something and death occurs, we just need to own it. Rather than pretend it's not real, we own the fact that when we sinned, other people got caught in the shrapnel. And when we own it, what happens? We humble ourselves before God and say, God, I blew it. I don't want to be near you. I want to be just like Adam and Eve in that Bible narrative, and I just want to hide from you. But instead, we humble ourselves. God, I blew it. God, I'm sorry. God, I didn't know what would happen here. And what's he do? He doesn't push us down, doesn't push us away. He lifts us up. Me, the favorite image is just running to my dad when I was little and going like this. 
but even better is my kids running to me and me lifting them up. I just love that image of what God wants to do with us. This caption from the Life Application Bible is basically this message in three minutes, which I could have just read and prayed and we would have been done for the day. (laughs) It says it so well. Footnote of my Bible, verses 13 to 15, it says this, It is easy to blame others and make excuses for our evil thoughts and wrong actions. We use excuses like these. It's the other person's fault. I couldn't help it. Everybody's doing it. It was just a mistake. Hey, nobody's perfect. The devil made me do it. I was pressured into it. I didn't know it was wrong. God is tempting me. A person who makes excuses is trying to shift the blame from himself or herself to something or someone else. A strong believer, on the other hand, accepts responsibility for his or her wrongs, confesses them, and asks God for forgiveness. One of the workshops I was at this weekend was led by a former pastor who now is involved in nonprofit work, and he was a pastor out in the Midwest, and he was 27 years old and got a church of 100, and God just did some really good works, and that church grew to 1,000. But as this congregation grew, so did his headaches, so did his anxiety, so did his stress load, and so he began relaxing that with some beer. He would drink beer before he went to bed. One turned into two, turned into more, turned into hard alcohol, and before he knew it, he was caught in this pattern that he didn't want anybody else to know about. And just had this epiphany. This is going to kill me or going to hurt someone else if I don't come out of this. And so rather than hide it any longer, he went to his leadership team, his eldership team, and just said, hey, I got some big news to share. And he shared his struggle with them. And rather than reject them, they embraced him. They got together. They prayed for that, what he was going through. Unfortunately, he did not kill anyone in this process. And what was so amazing was he wasn't healed in that instant. He didn't walk away and then no longer had this dependency. But what happened is he had the right tools to get the help he needed. He was embraced by the church, encouraged by the church, and they walked with him in his trial. Yeah, I think it's funny, verses 1 through 11, when we talk about the trials that we face, I've met plenty of people who stopped believing in God because of this thing that happened. I haven't met someone who doesn't believe in God without having a pretty good reason for what happened. It usually involves a really heavy trial or heavy situation. But verses 13 through 15, when people deal with temptations and sins, I've watched how the church has not come around people to encourage them, but has hurt people. And we have to be a group of people that are willing to work alongside them and say, I struggle too. He said these lines that I thought was so great. He says, there's no shame in the fact that you sin. We all sin. But there's a shame in keeping secrets. And why do we keep secrets? Because a lot of times we don't feel like they're safe to come out. So maybe today you just need to take a secret to God. Maybe you should take it to someone, not a group of people that can get out of hand, but maybe someone and allow them to walk with you as you're dealing with this. Because as James says, we're all going to be tempted. We're all going to face trials. And I love what he says in James 4 through 7. I want to leave that verse up there for a few moments where you can just take some time, reflect on what God's doing.